Welcome back, everyone, to Season 4 of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is, again, your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service. And I'm really honored to start this fourth season with a guest that is somewhat well-known in Notre Dame circles, both for her particular story and the inspiring life that she's led since then. And so we'll we'll get into all those things. But I want to welcome Haley Scott De Maria, a 1995 graduate of Notre Dame and 2012 commencement speaker for us here. So Haley, welcome to season four of the podcast. Thank you, Dan. I'm, I'm really glad to be a part of it. Well, we're glad to have you join us. We typically begin these by just having you introduce yourself a little bit to the audience. So could you tell us some about yourself? Sure. Um, I was Haley Scott when I was a, a student at Notre Dame. Haley Scott De Maria. now. Uh, I married a Notre Dame alum, Jamie De Maria, also class of 95. Uh, I currently live in Annapolis, Maryland. I have two boys. One is a junior in high school, current junior in high school. And the other just started his his freshman year at Notre Dame. So that's that's been really fun and, and interesting these last few weeks as well. Yeah, the parent experience. <laughs> y- yes, you know it's um it's a whole it's a whole different view um, on Notre Dame, but um, you just you learn more and more what you love about the university just through a different lens. But I we've been on the East Coast for about twenty years. My husband and I have been married for twenty years. Um, I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona. So Notre Dame was a long way from home for me, but of course became a, a, a another home as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely, as it does for for so many of us. What were some of the important moments of your childhood that imparted some of the lessons for you that you think served you well throughout your life? So it's interesting, Dan, and I talk about this a lot. So I think about it a lot. You know, I was I was raised in this in this very competitive household, and mm. you know, a very athletic household. Um, you know, there are there are a lot of athletes in my family. Uh, you know, a couple of Olympians. There's a couple of professional athletes in different sports. Yeah. Um, there's twelve of us cousins, and you know, all twelve of us played a sport in college. Um, I was a swimmer at Notre Dame. We'll certainly get to that. So I, you know, I grew up in this in this very competitive family that was pretty inspiring to to grow up in, but it was it was pretty challenging as well. Yeah. Um, and so I always say that was that was the the physical way I was raised. You know, the social way I was raised was just always competing in, in everything, whether it was in the pool, whether it was our backyard, whether it was in a family game of football on Thanksgiving. And then I was raised. You know, I I always I like to talk about my my spiritual journey, and mm-hmm. and that was very separate from you know this this competitive role that that my family played and. I was raised, um, I always like to call myself very affectionately a Christian mutt. Um, I was not <laughs> born Catholic. Um, I was baptized in the Presbyterian church. That was the church of my father. Uh-huh. Um, you know, religion and, and bringing, uh, you know, my siblings and I up in a, in a, in a religious environment was very important to my mother. Um, mm-hmm. So I think she thought that if we went to the Presbyterian church, my dad would take an interest in that. Um, and he didn't. So okay. I was baptized <laughs> Presbyterian. And then um, my mom thought, well, if you know, dad's not coming to church with us anyway, let's go to my church. And my mother was an Episcopalian. So okay. I spent my elementary school years in the Episcopal church and that was fine. And then my mom became the director of a Methodist school but didn't have much say in in the school because she wasn't a, a parishioner there. So uh-huh. then she joined the Methodist Church when I was in middle <laughs> school. So I and then I, of course I went to a Catholic high school and a Catholic college. So what I learned through that was that it was important um, to have a faith yeah. and to have a belief. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew it was important to my mother to give that to us. But I, you know, in looking back, you know, felt it at the time, realized it as an adult. I never necess- I didn't necessarily have. Um, a spiritual home. I didn't. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel comfortable really in any one place. Um, but but was really exposed to to different, um, you know, just slightly different aspects of of Christianity with the different denominations. Um, but again, that was very separate. Mm-hmm. It was not. It was something we did on Sundays, and it wasn't necessarily a part of our everyday life. And um, you know that, and that really changed. When I when I got to Notre Dame, I was I was not Catholic when I was a student there. Um, I am now. I converted later on. 
Mm-hmm. So it was it was also it was interesting to be yeah, a non-Catholic at a Catholic university and then to feel at home there, um, and that that really you know started the the real deep roots of of what would become my own faith and my own you know journey of faith as well. Um, so it was, you know, it was a pretty typical competitive, you know, mother parents trying to balance doing what they felt was best for their kids um, in raising them. Sure. This athletic competitive environment sounds like uh, the bar was pretty high in terms of athletic accomplishments and and what you would do. How did swimming rise to the top, so to speak, in in your own life as that was going to be the competitive pursuit that where you were, you were the strongest? So that, that's a very simple answer. And it's because I was so tall, um, <laughs> you know, be again, growing up in this family, it was never a question of would I play a sport? It was always what sport would I play? Right. And I tried them all. You know, I played baseball, softball, basketball, soccer, gymnastics, diving. Um, and, and at 10 years old, um, I was five feet, eight inches, Hmm. which is really tall for for a 10 year old girl, uh, (laughs) and, and was not very coordinated because of that. So I, I really didn't have much athletic talent, you know, at, at that age with the, the long limbs that I had. So I found myself in the pool. Again, I grew up in Arizona um, in Phoenix, pretty darn hot there in the summer. Um, So most of us learn to swim when we learn to walk. So everybody swims just because of the weather. But I had started with a summer swim team and, you know, found that I could beat everybody. It'd be Mm -hmm. really tough as a 10 year old girl to, to beat me again, just because I was so tall. And that, you know, that's really fun. Um, when you're 10 years old and you're, you know, then going into, you know, eventually middle school, those are really tough, challenging years for, mm-hmm. for some young kids. Um, certainly was tough for me being as tall and, and self, you know, <laughs> acknowledged being very awkward. Yeah. Um, but swimming was, you know, gave me so many gifts in that sense. It was, you know, it was again, a sport that I could do and I could do well. And it was a way to, to build that self-confidence and the identity and, you know, all those things that are so important for kids. Um, so that I came to swimming just because I really couldn't do anything else. Um, and because I was so tall and it, you know, when you're good at something, it's fun. Sure. Um, you know, it's not, it's, it's really tough to, to put so much time and effort into a, anything really, but in this case, a sport and not, um, sort of see the, the fruits of your labor, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So for me, I, I got into swimming and, uh, found out that I was good at it and that made it fun. And, and then I just stuck with it and it, it, and I learned a lot from it. You know, I, I learned this from swimming and from my sport, you know, they're great lessons that I think are important for, for kids to learn in general, but you know, the idea of, of, of commitment and to being, you know, waking up on time for practice and for, you know, learning to work hard and to want to work hard and to, you know, be a good teammate, which sometimes mm-hmm. can be tough in an individual sport. But I really did learn a, a lot of great lessons through swimming as a middle school student. And then certainly when I went to high school, um, I, I went to Xavier College Prep in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, and that was really because I wanted to swim. My yeah. public high school didn't have a swim team. And uh, Xavier had one of the best swim teams in the state. So I chose to go to the Catholic high school again, as a non-Catholic at the time, to be on their swim team. And and really loved it and just sort of went from there. Yeah. Well, I'm married to a swimmer, a former swimmer, and uh, the discipline that it takes in the early morning practices, uh, <laughs> there's certainly a lot of lessons in there. I don't know if I could, I don't know if I could hack it as a swimmer. That's uh, it's an impressive schedule that they often keep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you get to high school and at some point you realize, hey, I'm, I'm, I might be good enough here. You start to attract some attention from colleges and universities. So can you take us through the recruitment process or that decision to come and swim at Notre Dame? Sure. You know, it, recruiting is a, was, is a lot different today than it was, you know, 30 years ago when I was going <laughs> through this. But, you know, it, in, in swimming, it's, it's, it's really black and white. It's you have your times. So there's, mm. no, there's no judgment there. It's, it's you're either fast enough or you're not. So a lot of times you'd get letters from coaches in the mail. They would get, you know, lists of times from national meets. And, and the letters came in. And, I, you know, I talked to some coaches on the phone. And then it was really uh, Sister Lynn Windsor, who was our athletic director 
at Xavier at the time um, and is still there. She's she's really a force in Arizona athletics. Just stopped me in the hallway one day um, at, during my senior year and said, um, you know, hey, Scott, she called me by my last name. You know, where are you, <laughs> where are you applying to college? And I told her my list at the time. It included schools um, like William and Mary, Michigan, Rice, Brown. I think those were sort of the four I was looking at at that point. And she said, "What about Notre Dame?" And I just sort of shrugged and I said, "I hadn't hadn't even thought about it." And she said, "You'd be great for them. I'll give the coach a call." And hmm. she did. She called Coach Tim Welsh, and uh, he called me. If not, you know, that day, the next day, it seemed to happen pretty quick. And um, we set up a recruiting trip for me to come visit Notre Dame. And I didn't really know much about Notre Dame. Um, mm-hmm. you know, most of my family is, again, in Arizona and California. I knew I wanted to go away to school. That was really important to my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, they felt it was really important to see a different part of the country and to live in a different part of the country and experience that. So I was looking to go away. But the two things I heard from uh, my most of my family was, why would you want to go so far? And why mm. would you want to go someplace that was so cold? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, the climate here, not quite a Phoenix climate. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. But the funny part is I went, I came to visit South Bend um, on my recruiting trip. And, and I always joke, you know, this is back when athletes are actually recruited during their senior year. Right. You know, now they recruit when they're like 12. Right. <laughs> But I came to visit in uh, the first weekend in February of my senior year, and I showed up on campus, of course, in the warmest clothes I had, and it was about 60 degrees outside. Hmm. So I remember walking around campus in 60-degree weather in my the heaviest jacket I had, thinking, well, it's cold, but it's not that cold. <laughs> and it... it you know, of course, the following weekend, uh, which would have been in 1991, it was JPW, and they had a huge snowstorm, and parents couldn't get there. But I didn't oh, know that. Yeah, all, right. <laughs> all I knew was that you know it wasn't that cold. But I also really remember walking around campus, and I felt like I had a sign on my back that said, "Be nice to me. I'm a recruit." Hmm. And maybe I looked like I didn't belong there, but it really struck me how nice people were and how kind people were. You know, my coach. You know, Tim Walsh had said, you know, take some time walking around campus by yourself and and just see, get a feel for it. You know, because one of the great things about Notre Dame is they, especially coming from athletics, but I would imagine, you know, even as a, as a non-athlete, they really want it to be the right place for you. You know, they're not trying to recruit people that Notre Dame wants. They want, you know, Notre Dame wants it to Notre Dame to be right for you. Mm-hmm. And um, so I so I did that. And, you know, I, again, people just were so kind and nice and friendly and said hello. And um, if I got lost, I could ask, you know, where I needed to go. And that really struck me. So it was interesting that the two things that people were worried about, the weather and being so far away, it, in many ways had a huge impact on my life. Certainly the the weather would not being so cold when I when right. I showed up on my recruiting trip. And then just how kind and a real sense of home I felt walking around. I got off the plane going home and, you know, my parents asked how the trip was and I said, that's where I'm going to school. Huh. So it was a pretty easy decision once um, I actually went there and, and met Tim. Um, you know, one of the things I had learned growing up, you know, I'm the second youngest of these 12 cousins who all played sports. And I knew how important the role of a coach would be in college. You know, college is such a defining time for us. It's for any young person, you know, sure. 18 to 22 is is a real important age. And, and when we all try to figure out who we are and who we want to be. And, you know, as an athlete, the a, a collegiate coach is the one adult you will spend the most time with mm. um, during those formative years. And, and so I knew... I knew I really wanted to to swim for a coach um, that I would learn from, uh, not only in the pool but outside of the pool. So the weather and the the sense of home and, and Tim Welsh is really what brought me to Notre Dame. That's great. And did that continue in your initial time on campus? You felt that same sense of you made the right decision. Absolutely. Yep. It was you know like any college freshman, it was an adjustment for me to be away. Um, I had never gone to camp or, you know, really been away from home. You know, we, I had to figure out where my classes were and to make sure I was, you know, getting enough sleep and all the distractions that come from being away from home for the first time. Um, but it was an exciting time to be, you know, a, a, 
a female athlete and, and mm-hmm. participate in women's sports. You know, Dick Rosenthal was our athletic director and he had several daughters who all played sports. So he really believed um, and valued women, you know, as athletes. So, mm-hmm. and we were building the program. Um, you know, we had a really strong freshman class on the team that year. And, you know, the, the team would continue to get faster. And of, of course, today is so fast, you know, none of us could swim on it anymore. <laughs> but so it was, it was just an exciting time. You know, it was, you know, freshman year and you're away from home for the first time and you're part of a t- team that you get to travel because the freshmen are all so fast. And I was always amazed at how kind the upperclassmen were to us as freshmen. Mm-hmm. You know, we took a lot of travel spots away from mm-hmm you know, upperclassmen on the team. And they were just excited that we were helping the team get better. You know, it was, Hmm. that always amazed me. Um, You know, there was no bitterness, there was no conflict on the team at all. Um, And that was really a beautiful thing to be a part of, and a great thing to experience. And then, you know, all of that became really important. And um, especially the coach that I had, and especially, you know, the university where I was, during January of my freshman year. Yeah, that was certainly going to be where I wanted to go to next, that you were only here for a few months when your life changed in a really dramatic way. So could you share that? Uh, Some people are familiar with your story, but not everyone here. So could you share with us what happened then? Sure. We were, you know, one of the things I loved about Notre Dame, especially having come from an all-girls high school, was that the, the swim team was combined. The men and the women swam together. We trained together. We competed together. It was very much one team and we mm-hmm. had one coach. But there was one meet my freshman year that was women only. And of course, that was very fun too. You know, we were excited to sit on the bus where we wanted to sit because the guys always took up the back of the bus and would <laughs> guard the bathroom from us. And the guys always got to choose what movie we watched, which always ended up being, you know, Fletch or a Seinfeld marathon. And <laughs> so it was it was exciting to, you know, have just come back from Christmas break and be so excited to see my teammates again. There's nothing like leaving a place to realize how much you love it. And I knew I loved Notre Dame my first semester, but boy, when I went home and then came back, I was I was home when I was back on campus. Yeah. And we, so we swam, we had a women's only meet against Northwestern in Chicago. So not that far away. Um, Northwestern beat us. We knew they probably would. They had a a much faster team at the time, faster program, but we'd all swam really well. So coming home from that meet again, it was like a girl's night out. It was exciting that we had, you know, competed against a much better team. We were on our way home. We got to choose the movie we wanted to watch and um, we were about two miles from the exit to, to get off the toll road coming down I-80 from Chicago. And our bus hit a patch of black ice. Hmm. Um, now, coming from Arizona, that was a term I had never heard of before. Right. Um, and, and our bus literally did a flip turn, um, you know, hmm. in, in swimming language, language. We, you know, flipped upside down and we were facing the opposite direction um, as we landed down the embankment off the toll road. You know, and there's not a whole lot that I remember from that night. Um, mm-hmm. Although what I remember, I remember very clearly, you know, even mm-hmm. to this day, so many years later, I remember feeling like we were taking a quick turn to get off the toll road. Um, of course, that was a, the bus, you know, spinning and flipping. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember this, just this innate feeling of wanting to get off the bus very quickly and then I remember, you know, pulling myself out of the windows and um, just laying down in the snow, knowing that my back hurt. Hmm. And thankfully, many, most swimmers are trained as, as lifeguards and know that really with any head, neck or back injury, you shouldn't move. So one of my right. teammates who I'd been sitting next to sat with, stayed with me in the snow and wouldn't let me get up. You know, I told her hmm. my back had hurt and she said, don't move. Hmm. So she sat with me for about an hour and a half Again, this is 1992, and um, so even though we were just two miles from the exit to get to South Bend, that's one how poor weather conditions were that night. It took about an hour for medical help to arrive, and and two in 1992 there really aren't weren't the cell phones that we have right. today, so that instant communication was much slower. And and once once medical help arrived, I was thrilled they were taking me first. I was so cold and really because I'd been laying in the snow, but it was, it had never occurred to me that it was because I was the most seriously injured. And yeah. it was when I was being moved from the snow to the ambulance, um, well, to the stretcher to be taken up to the ambulance. 
um, was the first time I realized I had no feeling or movement from the waist down. Hmm. Uh, and I remember my teammate said to me, Haley, it's okay. Your legs are just numb from the cold. And I remember thinking that made perfect sense. You know, I was cold, my body was shaking, I would end up having a body temperature of about 94 degrees when I was admitted to the hospital. Hmm. And I really thought once I got warmed up that, you know, I would regain feeling or movement that made perfect sense to me. That didn't happen. Um, hmm. I had to end I ended up having two surgeries that night, um, just to hopefully relieve pressure off the spinal cord and, and hopefully allow feeling and movement to return. The good news is my spinal cord wasn't severed, but anytime the nerves die, um, there really is no way to, to rejuvenate them. So they wanted to take that pressure off the spinal cord. Mm -hmm. And after those two surgeries, I still had no feeling or movement. And um, that's when they gave me a 48-hour window for feeling or movement to return if I was to have any chance to walk again. Um, and at this point, one of my favorite stories occurs, and it, it's a story that I remember vaguely happening, and, and but I'm not sure I knew the, the impact of it and the power of it um, yeah. until much later on. But I was in the recovery room after my second surgery, and Father Malloy came in to see me. Um, and he had been out of town that morning, but of course had traveled back to campus um, as soon as he heard about the accident. Mm -hmm. And of course, any of us who know Monk, he, he is a very large presence, you know, both yes. in stature and, and, and in his holiness. Yep. And I remember he very humbly came over to my bedside and, and introduced himself. And, and he said, you know, Haley, I'm, I'm Father Malloy. I'm the, the president of Notre Dame. And I remember looking up at him thinking, I know. <laughs> and, you know, couldn't believe that he was there by my bedside. Right. And, um, and he asked, may I pray with you? And hmm. I, I think I said, or I know I said what I think, you know, most non-Catholics would say. And I, you know, I said, but I'm not Catholic. And he said, that doesn't matter. Can we pray? Hmm. And, you know, again, I, I, I don't think I had the, the, the mindset or the wherewithal at that moment to, to recognize it. But in, I can tell you at that moment, I knew I was going to be okay. And it didn't matter that I was just a freshman who had only been on campus for five months. And it didn't matter that I may never swim again or never walk again or that I was, wasn't Catholic. I, I was part of this community and I was part of this family. And no matter what was going to happen, um, I was going to be okay because I knew whatever it was, Notre Dame was, was going to be there. And that's, that is an amazingly powerful comfort to a young girl who's 18 years old and away from home and you know, her parents haven't showed up yet. Right. I've always remembered that. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. We often talk around here about Notre Dame is at its best when things are at their worst and to respond in tragedy like that. Now, you had a lot of ups and downs, including when you found out that two of your teammates actually passed away in the accident. So can you tell us about those moments where, where things were really hard in the aftermath? Sure. So the, the accident was very late, just after midnight, Thursday night, Friday morning. I had surgeries, those two surgeries, um, Friday. That's when Father Malloy came. My parents showed up that, that, that day as well. My teammates came to see me, which was amazing. You know, the, the support I received from the university, certainly when I was in the hospital, but I've always said really to this day, um, it is just huge. And I kept asking, how's the rest of my team? Uh, you mm -hmm. know, how are my teammates? How are the rest of my team? And, you know, the answer I got those first 24 hours were, you're, you're the only one still in the hospital. And mm. so it wasn't until, which was technically accurate. Right. Um, it wasn't until the next day, so the Saturday morning, about 36 hours after the bus accident, that I was told that, that two of my teammates had passed away in the accident, uh, Megan Beeler and Colleen Hip. They were also my classmates. They, too, were freshmen. Um, so they were part of that real, you know, core of, of swimmers that had, had trained and traveled and, you know, in some ways, in many ways, were the heart of the team at that time. And, and the reason they told me was because one of the girls um, was from South Bend and her family wanted to come see me that day. And, and at that point, they knew that I needed to know. Sure. And that was, uh, you know, it's really hard to process. Um, and it would take many months for me to, to, to process their, their death as well. Um, but I knew at that moment that I would walk and I would swim and I would do it for Colleen and Megan. Hmm. And that was, I've stuck, I stuck with that 
through the months I was in the hospital. Um, and it's, it's in, in a very real way, the way I live my life. I, I walked for them. I swam for them. I, I live my life in a way that honors them. And that has never stopped from the moment I learned that they had passed away. And that was always my drive. Um, so while that was a real difficult thing to hear and to learn and to live with, it also has given me a lot of strength um, over the past really three decades. You know, anytime I was in physical therapy, I, I was, you know, about 48 hours after the bus accident, um, I still had no feeling or movement. Um, at that point, I was told I would never walk again, um, that that 48-hour window had passed. Um, that was the following day. So it was, mm-hmm. it was a real tough weekend, not only learning that, that Megan and Colleen had passed, but also receiving the news from a nurse that this was permanent and I needed to, mm. to live with it and learn to live with it and accept it first. Um, and I wasn't at a place where I could do that yet. And my coach tells, Tim Welsh, tells a, a really beautiful story about a, um, a mass on campus uh, later that week where they had brought in a bunch of Catholic schools, Catholic grade schools, um, to, into the Joy Center, the Purcell Pavilion. Mm-hmm. And they were holding a mass, and, and the pool is, you know, it's all connected. So Tim was walking right. by on his way to the pool. And he said as he walked by, he heard the priest talking about the accident and that there's a girl still in the hospital, and she's been told she will never walk, and let's pray for her. And they did. And an hour later, Tim got the call that I had moved my toes. Wow. And it's, you know, it's stories like that, that just make you believe. And, mm-hmm. and even if you do believe, um, they, they, they reaffirm our belief. And, right. and sometimes I think maybe I didn't believe and, and God gave me very concrete, you know, reasons why I needed to. Yeah. But it was, it was, that was a roller coaster of a week. As you can imagine, there was the accident, there were the surgeries, um, I, I was told I couldn't walk. I was told my teammates had passed. Um, and then I moved my toes. Um, and that became a huge celebration, mm-hmm. um, not just for me and my family and my little world in the hospital, but really for the entire campus. Um, yeah. You know, this was an event that affected everyone. Everyone either knew a swimmer or had a swimmer in class. And it was it was a real – it was a campus in mourning. And, and the celebration of this one glimpse of hope that Haley's moving her toes um, was extremely uplifting for, for really everyone who, who was mm-hmm. suffering at that time. And, and then that was a roller coaster for everyone. Um, you know, I spent the next two months in the hospital learning to walk again. Uh, that was very challenging for me. Um, that was a real lesson in learning to accept where I was um, while also striving for more. Mm-hmm. Well, I was an extremely impatient 18-year-old, and the <laughs> process of learning to walk again was a real challenge for me. Um, in some ways, I, I had all the tools to, to do it. You know, I was, I, was worst, I was used to two practices a day, which was just like physical therapy twice a day, and I was used to setting goals. And, um, you know, physical therapy is really hard work, um, and I was mm-hmm. used to working hard. You know, athletes certainly have a, a leg up in that. But I also really struggled with the the process. Um, you know, I, I had to learn how to walk the way we all do the first time. So I had to first learn how to log roll and then get up on my hands and knees and learn how to crawl. And I spent a week learning how to crawl. And, you know, I didn't ever want to crawl. I could care less if I never crawled again. I didn't need to know how to crawl. I just wanted to walk. <laughs> yeah. So that was frustrating, but I was learning it was about the process. Um, and I was learning to, to celebrate, again, what I could do. And yet, know that there was there's always still more work to be done, and and I, I've, that stayed with me. You know, it's um, you know we can certainly celebrate things we've accomplished and achieved, but it doesn't mean we stop there. You know, I think we're always asked and called to do more. Mm-hmm. I left the hospital in South Bend uh, about two months after the accident. Um, I came back to campus for about a month. Um, I was wearing what I call a turtle shell. It was a whole body brace, you know, around my torso and. I would learn um, shortly after I went back to Phoenix after classes ended in May that I would need additional surgery, an additional surgery that summer. Um, I would learn that my spine had not healed, um, and not only had it not healed, but it had actually recollapsed. Hmm. Um, and at that point, I needed to have an orthopedic surgeon really, you know, fix the the bones. Um, my neurosurgeon in, in South Bend had certainly fixed 
you know, the, the nerves and the, and my spine. Um, but at this point the bones were pretty broken. And so I ended up having three more surgeries in San Diego that summer. My dad, again, in 1992, there's no internet to look up doctors and surgeons who, who specialize in this type of surgery. So he was spent a lot of time on the phone and the specific doctor who did the type of surgery I needed a lot lived in San Diego. And a lot at this time was about eight to 10 times a year. So not really a lot. Yeah. And I remember, you know, he, Dr. Garfin in San Diego had said a couple of things to me, you know, that what they needed to do was an anterior approach. So they had tried to fix me straight from behind. And what they needed to do was do an approach from the front to straighten my spine. Um, at this point, it was a bent over at about a 45 degree angle, which is pretty significant. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Garfin had said, you're young, you're healthy, you're in good shape. Um, you'll be fine but you wouldn't want to do this surgery twice. And I went to San Diego expecting to have one surgery. Um, the rods in my back caused some complications. So that was surgery number one was to take those out. Surgery number two was the big one. Unfortunately, Dr. Garfin was not able to straighten my spine during that. He, um, in his words, this had been about five months from the accident, just said it had been too broken for too long. Uh, but I mm. suffered some pretty significant complications coming out of that second surgery, heart failure, my lungs collapsed, um, and I was draining too much fluid. Um, so at that point, they, they told me that they needed to go back in uh, and do a third surgery to, to clean that up and, or to fix it. Um, and you know, at that point, I remember thinking, okay, I'm young, I'm healthy, I'm in good shape, I'm going to be fine, but I wouldn't want to do this surgery twice, the massive one. And, and here I was having this one surgery. Right, doing it again. Oh my gosh. Right. Yeah. That week was that week of those two surgeries by far, hands down. And I hope they remain. It remains the, the, the most difficult week um, in my life. Mm -hmm. um, I was just, I was physically beaten. Um, I, my body was beaten. Um, you know, there was no guarantee I was going to come out of this third surgery. There was no guarantee I was coming out of the second surgery in South in San Diego. And um, the thought of going into this fifth surgery, the third one in San Diego, just really beat me down emotionally as well. The, the amazing thing is, is they went back in and they were able to fix um, the, the draining, the leakage that was draining. And Dr. Garfin had said to my parents, you know, I would never take the risk of this surgery just to try to straighten her spine again. But since we have to go back in anyway, you know, give me one more chance. Okay. And, you know, he'll tell you even to this day that he doesn't know why. Um, but when he went back in and adjusted the bone graft I have there, uh, my entire spine popped straight. Hmm. So it's it's been a great lesson. And it is truly the reason today that I am straight, my back is straight, and I can pretty much do anything I want physically and, you know, live this amazing pain-free life. I mean, the fact that mm. I have no pain is, is probably the biggest miracle of the story. Yeah. But it's, but it's, it's, it's again, a great lesson for me um, because my mom will tell you, you know, one of the reasons this was such a hard time and is because I didn't, I wasn't in South Bend. Um, while medically the, the, the care that I needed, you know, the best person place for me to be was San Diego. I didn't have my teammates. I didn't have my coaches. I didn't have the whole community. Right. Um, you know, there's no caring bridge page in 1992. There's no right. cell phones. So no one really knew what was going on. And, you know, for my mom to let anyone know she had to leave me, which she rarely did and, you know, go call someone on a payphone. And I will say when she called, they came, you know, Dick Rosenthal came, Tim Welsh came, uh, Missy Conboy came out, but it was, I was very alone and very isolated. And that was, you know, made it an even darker time, mm -hmm. but it, but there were many, you know, wonderful lessons there too. You know, my mom will tell you that going into that second surgery, the first big one in San Diego, the only thing she asked people to pray for was that it would be my last one. Mm. She saw me, she saw my beaten body, you know, she knew how tough this was and, and yet it wasn't my last one and I had to go in for a third one. And so, you know, the way she asked for the prayers and what she asked for was that the second one would be the end. And yet, you know, had her prayers been answered in the way that she asked it, I wouldn't have this straight back and I wouldn't have this pain-free life. Yeah. Um, and it's a wonderful, it's always been a wonderful lesson for me to remember that, you know, God may not answer our prayers the way we ask them, mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. but he he usually has a better answer. Right. <laughs> um, and, and that was a very real, you know, for us example, because I knew that's what people were praying for. And I knew that's what I didn't get. Yeah. But, but ultimately, I got the better answer. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing real life lesson. Thank you for sharing that with us. So you go through all those ups and downs and surgeries and recoveries. And yet, miraculously, you you found your way back at Notre Dame, walking and swimming, and you swam in the pool again. Can you just explain to us what that moment meant on so many levels? So that for me was what I thought was the end, you know, mm-hmm. the end game. And, you know, since the moment I had had heard about Megan and Colleen, again, my goal was to walk and to swim for Megan and Colleen. And I was I was out of the hospital and I was walking. And, you know, after San Diego, I knew my back would heal and it did. And I couldn't wait to get back in the pool. You know, to me, getting back in the pool and being with my teammates was was physically and emotionally healing. Um, it was just, it was where swimmers belong. You know, we are right. at home in the water and, and it was a very healing place for me in many ways. And I needed to compete again. I, I wanted to do that for my teammates who, who could no longer swim. And I, and I wanted to sort of go back and be who I was before and who I was before was the swimmer. So it was in many ways an extraordinary event um, and in many ways just like every other meet. And, you know, it was extraordinary in the sense that there were so many people there. Um, And I always say it's one of the most, certainly at the time, the most people who would ever come to an Notre Dame swim meet. (laughs) And, And I say that not because it was about me, but because that's the community where we were, you know, right. uh, certainly my coaches were there. There were coaches from other sports who came. Um, it was fall break and, and students stayed so that they could or actually came back early because it would have been the second week of fall break, mm-hmm. um, you know, so that they could be there. And, and the South Bend community came out, um, you know, the state trooper who was first on the scene of our accident, Kevin Cooch mm-hmm. came and my ER doctor was there and my physical therapists were there. And it was just an amazing show and display and sense of community that, you know, 22 months later, 21 months later, they were all going to come help celebrate this, this story of healing. And I love that part of it. Um, I love that. I love that that's the way this part of the story ends, because I really thought the story was over. Um, (laughs) And I swam two events. I swam the 50 freestyle, which was Megan's favorite event and the 100 butterfly, which was Colleen's. And, you know, I, I always say that is the Hollywood ending. I swam that fifth to be free. I won that heat. Um, you know, I won that first race back and it was an amazing re-entry into swimming. And I truly thought this meant I was done and I was healed. I was walking, I was swimming, I was back on the team. Roll the credits. (laughs) Exactly. And you learn very quickly that doesn't happen. It doesn't go away. And, you know, I tried so hard and waited so long to go back and be that person I was before and go back and be that swimmer I was before. And and it doesn't happen. You know, you can't go through something like I did or as like we did as a team and and not have your life fundamentally change. And Mm -hmm. I fought that for a long time. And and it was really hard um, to, to work through that. Um, and swimming got really hard for me as much as I loved it and as, as desperate as I had been to, to be back on the team and as exciting as it was to swim again and be with my teammates. Um, it was amazing. But I was not as good as I was before. And yeah. um, that's not important to a lot of people, but it was very important to me. Sure. And it was really hard to to look at the clock after every event and have it be a real reminder that that this accident had changed me, and mm. you know it was never going away. And I think that is a very real struggle for anyone who experiences anything. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be what I went through, and for most people, thank goodness it won't be. Mm-hmm. You know, anytime tragedy affects your life, whether it's a, a a death, an injury, an accident, a divorce, you know, whatever it is, it, it, it changes us and, and it will happen to all of us in, in some form. And I, I think that's the real challenge. And that's, that's really where the importance, at least for me of, you know, my faith comes in is it changes us and that's okay. Mm-hmm. It can be okay. And in many ways it can be a really beautiful thing. And 
that's that's really the choice and the way you know how I how I try to live my life now. Well, it makes me think about the risen Christ that here he's gone through this terrible passion, suffering and death and all of a sudden he's back, you know, he's raised and we we have that desire to like let's get back to normal. Let me get back to who I was before the accident. Let me get back to who I was before this this time of suffering. And yet the resurrected Christ isn't back to normal. He he still carries his wounds and I think that can really be inspiring for us to say that we can still carry our wounds and learn from them and keep living, maybe not the way that we thought, but in in a way that that we have a deep knowledge that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think that at times, the more we suffer, the more we are able to find joy. And, you know, I, I know that is one of the things I'm most grateful for is, is you know, the depth of feeling that I have and, and the compassion that I, I feel with others as, as they go through their own suffering. And I think sometimes you have to understand that suffering to be able to feel it and to be able mm-hmm. to have the the depth of compassion. And it's, you know, I get asked all the time, especially by my kids when they were younger, you know, do you wish this had never happened? Hmm. And I, I often, I, I find that a, a very hard question to answer. It's <laughs> right. certainly a complicated one yeah. um, because of course I wish, you know, my two teammates were here and I, you know, I wish they had had, you know, the opportunity to live as I have. Um, and, and so for that, I wish it hadn't. But when I look at everything in my life that gives me the most joy, that has the most meaning, that I love, that I care for, my family, my faith, uh, it, it all stems from this very sad event. And mm-hmm. it, it, it really changes every part of you. And there are so many things, the most important things in my life for which I am so grateful. And um, it, so it's a hard question to answer because I, I really am grateful in many ways for the gift that Notre Dame gave to me during this hardship. Um, you yeah. know, I, I know without a doubt um, that I would not have healed the way I did and I wouldn't have the faith that I do. And, and I did eventually join the Catholic Church, although not when I was a student, um, <laughs> uh, but later on, because what I learned was I never wanted to be without this community of faith. And yeah. I don't know how you go through something like we did without it. And and it doesn't just show up when you need it. Uh, oftentimes, it's it's there because you you give to it and you're a part of it when you don't need it. And and so that's a very real way that we live our life now as a family every day is to to be a part of whether it's our church, whether it's the Naval Academy here, um, you know, in Annapolis, you know, our children's school, their high school, um, even you know, being part of the Notre Dame community and supporting one another and, and giving to those communities and being part of a community of faith or several so that it's there when you need it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very a powerful tool. Yeah, it's really important. You mentioned that you thought that was the end. You know, that was your finish line, so to speak, was to get back in the pool. But life did go on for you in, in a number of ways. So could you tell us about some of the life decisions that you made after Notre Dame? Sure. When I, gra- I graduated a semester late, um, I there were just too many classes for me to try to make up and, and cram sure. in. So it was, it worked for me. Uh, you know, I walked with my class in 1995. I've I've always been part of the class of 1995. I've always, yeah. um, but I did stay an extra semester and and finish up my classes. And for that, that for me was great. You know, I said goodbye to my classmates, and then I had a semester to say goodbye to the school, hmm. and and that was important for me to do too. I moved back to Phoenix. I ended up teaching for for five years at at my alma mater and coaching swimming Xavier College Prep, and and that that was really when I saw the importance of. Um, when I was reaffirmed for me, the, the importance of this community of faith, you know, part of one of my roles at a, as a Catholic high school, which is, you know, true at many schools, we were married, we wore many hats. And, uh, one of the hats I wore was to be the moderator of our student, senior student council. And so I worked with a group of eight seniors, you know, every day and throughout the year, got to know them really well. They were great kids as most kids are. And um, one of our senior student council officers um, was hit and killed by a drunk driver on prom night. 
Oh, my. She and her date had not been drinking, but as she pulled out of the hotel, um, she was hit by a 55-year-old man who had been drinking. Hmm. And and she died about a few hours later. And, and what I saw that night... Um, you know, having been a chaperone at prom and being at the hospital when we received the news and what I saw on campus at Xavier over the following weeks was what I imagined Notre Dame must have been like on campus. Um, because mm. of course I wasn't there. I was in the sure. hospital, but I saw it through a different lens and I saw this campus in mourning and I saw a community of faith come together and take care of a family that was hurting in, 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 in the most difficult way. And it was really at that moment that I knew that I needed to be a part of a community like that always. Mm. Um, it was it was really powerful for me to see the other side of it, you know, to to recognize this was very similar. You know, this this wasn't just a Notre Dame thing. This was this was and not even just a Catholic thing. It's a it's a community of faith. And for me it's mm-hmm. it, was, it was the Catholic Church. And and so I did join the Catholic Church and um, because I knew I didn't ever want to be without it. Um, and it was also a real turning point, um, again, for my now husband and I. Um, we hadn't dated at Notre Dame, and um, we dated, started dating about three years after we graduated. And he happened to be in town, you know, to come as my date uh, to this mm. prom that I had to chaperone. And, and his ability to be there for me and to support me so that I could spend time supporting these girls was really critical for us because he didn't ever tell, because it was hard. It was really hard for me to be close to these girls. And and I didn't know what the family was going through and I didn't know what it was like to lose a child, but I knew what my senior student council officers were going through. I knew what it was like to lose a classmate at 18 in a really harsh way. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and so it was, it brought back a lot of feelings for me and it was very difficult. Um, And my, my now husband didn't try to, didn't stop me. Didn't say, why would you do this? Why would you relive this? Why would you go through it again to help someone else? What he did was support me so that I could help them. And I, I, that was, that was really important for us. And that's, you know, how we functioned for the the last 20 years. He's, he's always done a really nice job of making sure that I'm okay so that I can go out and, and help others and reach out to others and, and sometimes relive those really hard feelings that don't go away. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I can share that emotional connection with someone going through a really tough time. So that was that. That's really what led me to the Catholic Church, and it took me a long time beyond that to be able to share my story. Um, again, I wanted it to go away. I didn't want to be Haley Scott Notre Dame swimmer. Sure. And so I tried to ignore it. And you know, in many ways, I loved for a number of reasons getting married, because I went from being Haley Scott in Arizona, where everyone knew me and what I had gone through, to Haley De Maria, who now lives on the East Coast and nobody knows anything. <laughs> yeah. And that was great until I realized that that wasn't the authentic me. That hmm. it was very hard to not share that part of my life because it clearly defined everything that I had done. And, you know, I tried to figure out what to do with this. And, you know, I, I have my, once I was able to have my two children, which was sort of the last unknown, um, what's this crazy body going to be able to do? They didn't know. And they, and they don't, they still don't know, you know, I'm sort of a walking anomaly. Um, there aren't too many, you know, there's no precedent really for, for what I've gone through. And, you know, once I had my second son, I thought, okay, I have healed in such an amazing way. What am I doing with this? You know, why? And, and that was a question I really asked myself for the first time. There weren't a whole lot of why did this happen to me when I was going through it, but there were certainly a lot of why did I heal as well as I have and what am I doing with it? What am I doing with it? Yeah. Right. And that was when, so this is the early 2000s, you know, it's been 10, 12, 13 years after the bus accident. And um, really the reason I decided to share my story was my next door neighbor. Um, At the time we were living in Philadelphia and she was 36 at the time. Um, she would end up passing away at age 38. Hmm. I thought that was old when I was in my 20s. Right. <laughs> I blew through 38 about a decade ago, and I'm realizing it wasn't old at all. Right. But she had four young children and hmm. and was dying of breast cancer. And I didn't know her very well, but I just I felt called to share my story with her. Yeah. And I completely chickened out 
I wrote it down instead of telling her <laughs> and I gave it to her again because I didn't know her very well. And I, I don't, I didn't at the time like burdening people with telling them about it because people sometimes don't know how to respond. But I did feel called to share it with her. And, and I remember after she had read it, um, she could barely walk at the time. She was really struggling physically. And I was in our front yard and she walked over to my house and gave me a huge hug and just said, you understand. Hmm. And I remember hugging her. I can still see us in the front yard thinking, but I don't, you know, because I know how your story will end. And I know mm-hmm. how mine is living right now. And, um, but it was, it was a moment of clarity for me that I have this story of, of healing, of understanding, suffering, of hope that is really powerful when people need hope or are suffering or need understanding and and what was i doing with it you know if i have this ability to give comfort to this young mom who is dying and i'm keeping it to myself how selfish is that you know of mm. of all the people who reached out to me when i was going through you know my own experience it was my turn and yeah. and that that really was what led me to write my book and and share this this really hard and raw and beautiful story. It's so, it's an amazing story to even think about and one that continues on. You've mentioned so many people from your coach to your teammates, the doctors, the Notre Dame community, your husband. One of the themes of this podcast, of course, with his title is holiness. Mm -hmm. And I always like to ask the guests, who are some of the models of holiness that uh, when you think back on your life and say, those are the holy people or those were the those are the ways that I'm trying my best, although imperfectly, to strive after holiness? So the, the two examples that I reflect on, um, especially when I was really the examples that I had in my life growing up were my grandfather and my aunt. Mm-hmm. on separate sides. It's my, my mother's father and then my dad's sister. And my, my grandfather was the only other Catholic in our family. He was, he was a knight of Malta. He was a, he traveled with Cardinal Cook. He was very, <laughs> um, it was, his faith was very important to him. Yeah. Um, it's interesting when he married my grandmother, she asked, she was the Episcopalian, which is where my mom was raised Episcopal. And, and he didn't ask, you know, she asked, do you want me to convert? And he said, no. And, and his real philosophy was, um, you know, religion needed to be right for you and your faith was mm. very personal. And for him, it was very personal in the Catholic church. And, um, he passed away in, in 2005. So it's, but at age hundred, so he lived a, a really wonderful wow. life. Um, <laughs> but I, but he lived with my parents, um, for several years and I, I would take him to daily mass and, and he was there when I converted and it was a, a really wonderful thing, but he was diagnosed with throat cancer, um, when he was 82 years old and had a full tracheotomy and laryngectomy, laryngectomy, and, um, had to reteach himself how to talk. Hmm. This was when I was in, in grade school and high school and my grandmother had just passed away and then, you know, pop got cancer and we thought, well, there goes pop too. you know, he's 82 years old and, yeah. and he didn't, he, he relearned how to talk and he spent the next 15 years till he was in his late nineties visiting schools and sharing with them what happens if you smoke. And he would always hmm. say, I never told them not to smoke, but I would always say, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, it, he didn't need to do that, but he took, he took a, a really tough thing in his life and he prayed about it and he felt called to share his experience with others. And, and that always, that was just, that was just something I lived with that I witnessed and I saw growing up. Uh, my aunt had my, I, she had two children, two daughters and my oldest cousin was diagnosed with a very rare bone cancer when she was 16 and she passed Mm. away about a month after she graduated from high school. Um, I was a freshman in high school at the time. And my aunt then went back to school and became an RN and a hospice nurse and spent the next 30 years as a hospice nurse um, because that was so meaningful to her experience in losing her own daughter. And and I always found that remarkable that she would relive her grief over and over mm-hmm. through the lives of others because she, it, it made such an impact on her life. And my aunt is one of the most holy people I know. 
and she sent me a letter when I was still in intensive care um, in South Bend right after the accident. And it was a letter that actually angered my mother to the point where I didn't get the letter until several weeks later. And she talked about how lucky I was at such a young age to to learn of God's love for me wow. and to feel his presence in my life. Um, and my mom was at a place where she didn't feel like that was something I needed to read. <laughs> right. Right. You know, it wasn't it wasn't how she was viewing this at the time. Um, and yet that's exactly what it was. And I couldn't agree with her more and her ability to, you know, I was so lucky at, at 18 years old to to have this experience that that really touched me and changed me. And, and, you know, my, my aunt and I see, you know, we have differences in, in many ways, but boy, I, I have always, I've always appreciated and seen her walk her holiness every day. Um, and I think it's, it's really inspiring to have, to have those two very powerful examples as a young child, um, Mm -hmm. you know, through those formative years and through college as well to see how important it is when we suffer to not turn away from our faith and, and to really turn towards it and then share, share it with others. Well, it's amazing to me because, I mean, just hearing these handful of stories from your life, you've been witness to a lot of suffering even outside of your accident and then throw that, that personal experience on top of that. We all go through seasons of suffering in our lives. And and we do, at those moments, have that choice to turn away or turn towards our faith. What has helped you make that decision to deepen and turn towards your faith in those moments? Well, I'm not sure I had a choice in the beginning. Um, You know, (laughs) when I went to Notre Dame, I, I would say I had a faith that was pretty undefined. You know, again, I knew it was important to my mom. She she had made it a priority on Sundays, but I, I didn't necessarily have it myself. Hmm. Um, I've always truly believed that it wasn't my faith that got me through it at the time, that it was everybody else's. Yeah. And, you know, Notre Dame is is such a community of faith and, and you, you feel it on campus. And I felt it in my hospital room. And, and, and that's it. Again, it is tangible and it is powerful. And you know, even my coach, Tim Welsh, will talk about, you know, when we were at the pool, the the messages and the the strength that was sent from around the country, from other teams, other colleges, other universities, alumni, my grandfather, again, who was Catholic, he couldn't travel at the time. He sent his friends who were nuns to come visit me. I mean, it, it, <laughs> I couldn't not feel it. It was so tangible and so palpable. And, and, and the words I will pray for you are so powerful when you know they're spoken truthfully. And I heard them over and over. And it was amazing to me and inspiring to me that people would take the time to do that, to, to write a letter, to write a card, to say those prayers. When you feel that and experience that at, at your at your darkest time, it is, it's really powerful. And, and, and because of that, it, it taught me to trust it mm. because that's all I had. I didn't, I didn't have my own faith. I just had these very faith filled people around me. Um, and I learned, I learned to trust it. And I, I learned that the power of prayer works. And I learned again, that we might not get the answer we want, but it's always the right answer. And it, that is very hard to trust, but it's very comforting to trust as well. And it's hopefully something that I've taught my children. You know, they they know my only prayer for them is for their, you know, their health, their safety, and their happiness. And and if you can have those on every any day, it's a good day because we won't always mm. have those. Um, you mm-hmm. know, there's there's no prayers for the A on the test. There's no prayers to not strike out at the you know at the plate. <laughs> there are only prayers for their their health, their safety, and their happiness. And you know, we don't always get that. Um, but the times that we don't, I think, help us appreciate the times that we do. And, and I think that's the choice we have to make every day. It's not always easy. I don't always get it right. But I think when for me, when I've had this very very hard very real uh, event that happened in my life. It, it does, everything's rooted in that and, and that trust and that, that very powerful community of faith that I know is so important. It is inspiring for all of us to hear that. And you're really a gift to so many people, I'm sure your family and friends, but to the whole university. And I'm so pleased to share this story with, with the Faith Indy audience. And, you know, just thank you for having the courage 
there, you know, to get over that hump and, and share your story for the first time. And I'm sure there is the Holy Spirit and grace working through you and through this story that is going to be helpful to a lot of people who hear this. So, Haley, I just want to thank you for taking the time with us today and for sharing some of these important aspects of your story with us. Oh, thank you, Dan. It is, it's my privilege to do so. Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast. If you'd like to be aware of future episodes of the podcast, we welcome you to subscribe either on the podcast service of your choice or by signing up for our daily gospel reflection at faith.nd.edu slash signup. We thank you for being with us, and until next time, you will be in our prayers. Thank you very much. Thank you.